Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I want to provide a trigger warning alert at the beginning of this episode. I will be talking about sexual assault and rape specifically. I'm not going to be talking about it explicitly, like depicting actual events or anything or stories, but I will be talking about the topic because it is the the topic of, of today's episode. So if you're triggered by this sort of thing, I'm guessing there's a 50% chance that this episode might trigger you and cause you distress related to your PTSD. And so uh, just be forewarned on that. But for many of you who might get triggered by, say, a scene in a movie, I'm guessing that this episode has a good chance that it won't trigger you. So um, just be warned about that. So I have an email from an anonymous patron. She writes, Is it normal for a victim of sexual abuse to be into rough sex or rape fantasies? I have a fantasy about the abuse happening again, with the tears and the fear and everything. It feels wrong. Does that mean on some subconscious level that I wanted it to happen? And maybe I even liked it? Does that make it okay? Am I normal? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the definition of rape fantasy. I'm going to talk about the, I'm going to summarize the research that's been going on all the way back into the 50s, 60s, 70s. I'm going to talk about the prevalence rates, you know, how many people actually report having fantasies of rape or similar kinds of fantasies. I'm going to talk about the theory as to why people might have these kinds of fantasies. Uh, people have been theorizing about this going back to the 40s and, and beyond. And so there's been a lot of different ideas and there's been a lot of research into it as well. There are several known factors that may or may not contribute to this phenomenon of people having fantasies of rape. And also I'll be talking, I'll be directly addressing the patrons' uh, questions as to does that mean that they want it to happen or, you know, are they normal and whether or not people should be worried about these fantasies. So those are the things I'm going to, this is, this is going to be a deep dive uh, on this topic. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. You might have to go to your computer. You might have to actually you know, go to the website, go to patreon.com, uh, become a patron, and you will get access to this episode along with hundreds of other deep dives that we've done on various topics such as this. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thanks a lot. Okay, let's get into this. First, let's have a definition. I always like to start with a definition of the term rather than just forging ahead without knowing what exactly we're talking about. So the definition of rape fantasy that I'm using is fantasies that involve the use of physical force or the threat of force to coerce a, wo a woman into sexual activity against her will. So the elements here are it's a fantasy about sex that involves force and it's non-consensual. Now, there are two different kinds of rape fantasy that are, are discussed in the literature. The first is erotic rape and the second one is aversive rape. 
So erotic rape is when it's low levels of fear with no realistic violence. So it's, it's much more akin to someone who just is, yeah, if, if we're talking about a woman, she's fantasizing about being approached by a very dominant, masculine, attractive man who can't control himself and, and just needs to have sex with her. Um, she might say no, but she doesn't really resist much beyond that. And he overpowers her, and eventually she gives in. So think about, like, you know, romance novels, this kind of stuff. Uh, the, the, the quintessential scene, you know, with the heaving breasts and the, the hairy chest <laughs> of the man and how he's, you know, he just can't control him. He must have her. And she's like, no, I can't. I don't want to. And then she's like, oh, okay. So this is um, what we call erotic rape because it, it's not um, aversive rape, which I'll define in a second. And to be clear, this is still rape. It's not like rape light. It's, it's actual rape, you know, because the woman is not consenting. So uh, I just want to be clear about that, you know, unless people are doing a role play and there's consent to in advance to engage in this sort of thing, this is, uh, this sort of behavior is morally and ethically wrong on behalf of the male in this scenario because she said no. And, and, you know, just because she quote unquote gave in and, and enjoyed it, me, you know, could mean that she, in the end she's happy that it happened, but it, it's probably more likely in the end she'll be like traumatized by it because uh, she was overpowered and felt helpless and, and imposed upon sexually. So erotic rape is, is rape. Now, having said that, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, what if the woman is just acting like she doesn't want it, but she really does want it? Is that rape? Uh, hard to say. Yeah, I guess you'd have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but I just want to be clear that uh, we should just draw a hard line on that and just say, you know, let's for, for both parties, they should not be doing this. If you're a woman and you like this sort of thing, uh, you should not be engaging in the type of sex where it uh, one potentially is confusing to partners because you know what if the next time you don't you actually don't want to do it and they just force themselves on you and you're you're actually are traumatized by that you know you've 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 cried wolf one too many times you know um uh, and also particularly for men though to understand uh, that this sort of you know this is depicted in a lot of james bond movies and you know a lot of um Japanese film and anime and stuff. And we should just understand that, uh, you know, the, the idea that she secretly wants me to overpower her is a, is an extremely dangerous notion that can not only harm people, both people, but also can get you into legal trouble. So I just want to be clear about that. Uh, the other thing here is aversive rape. So we have erotic rape and aversive rape. So again, erotic rape is, uh, is an erotic, pressuring of a male, you know, the male erotically pressures the woman to have sex. The woman's slightly um, uh, saying no, but then gives in and, and actually likes it. Aversive, aversive rape in the literature is defined as, as more quintessential rape, you know, just someone who forces themselves on another person sexually. 
the victim does not want to have sex, never, never quote unquote gives in, never wants to have sex. Um, the sex is, can be very painful. The, the victim never gets any pleasure from it. The, the victim is used basically like a, like an object in a, in, in contrast with erotic rape, the, the woman in these fantasies actually get a lot of sexual pleasure from it. You know, at first they're like, no, I don't want to. And then once they give in, then they have a lot of sexual pleasure from that activity. Whereas with aversive rape, there's no sexual, there's usually in these, and again, these are fantasies. They're not actual things that happen. I mean, they are actual things that happen, but we're talking strictly about the fantasies The the aversive rape fantasy is one in which the person who's fantasizing about the rape doesn't uh, in their fantasy take pleasure in the sexual act. So the if we're talking about male, female, heterosexual, which is the most common configuration, the, the male is likely to be older. The, the male is likely to be unattractive and possibly even a stranger. He overpowers her. He might even tie her up. He might rip off her clothing. The woman is struggling the whole time. She is not happy. You know, this, is, this isn't a romance novel. This is like a straight-up rape. Uh, the, the woman is uh, often completely uninterested in the sexual activity during this fantasy. Uh, and again, she's probably fighting the whole time. So again, I just want to check in. It's just if if you're a survivor, just check in with your body right now and make sure you're not spiking with your PTSD because that's possible. And so just sort of check in with your breathing and your heart rate and your overall distress level so that you're not being harmed by this this podcast. If 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 you find yourself escalating in distress, just just turn it off and you know, maybe return later or something once your distress is lowered or just avoid this whole thing altogether <laughs> because uh, I, I don't want this to harm you. Okay. So again, we have erotic rape and aversive rape, and these are fantasies. So they're not, they're, we're not, we're, we're never talking about actual rape here. We're just talking about people who fantasize while masturbating or while having sex with somebody or just while riding the bus. And it's a pleasurable fantasy that involves being forcefully taken sexually, whether, and we have two categories, which is erotic rape, which is more uh, in the situation where the target um, the fantasizing individual actually wants to, but just kind of says no, doesn't feel like it's, you know, like there's some kind of reason why they're saying no. Uh, maybe they're trying to preserve their virginity or something, but deep down they really want it. And then aversive rape is more straight up, um, horrific, terrifying rape. And there are people who fantasize about both or either uh, kinds of rape fantasies. Okay, so let's go into the prevalence rates here. We have uh, several studies that go back uh, to uh, that I've found going back to the 70s. And I'm just going to throw out some statistics and then I'll provide a summary at the end of, in terms of what likely we're looking at. Overall, what I'll say here first is that the majority of studies are on Americans. They're on people living in the United States. They are likely to be people in college campuses, you know, because a lot of psychological research is expensive and therefore finding participants for your studies is difficult 
but one of the ways that universities will make it less difficult is to make it a requirement for a course or to allow people to get extra credit. I think I've talked about this before. When I was 19 years old and taking psychology course, I I took one psychology course when I was getting my bachelor's degree and it was terrible. I hated it. It was really boring. It had literally a thousand people in the class and uh, I was, I was just an overview of everything psychological. And I find those courses just to be extremely uninspiring I didn't know I wanted to be a therapist at the time, so it didn't bother me, but I could, they offered all of us, we could get extra credit if we participated in research studies. And so uh, it was like, wow, I mean, if I could get an extra 0.5, great, you know, instead of getting a 2.5, I get a 3.0 if I just sign up for a few of these dumb um, you know, research studies and, you know, it could be kind of fun to be a lab rat. Um, and so I signed up for them and, um, Someday I'll go into some of the details of those studies. But anyway, so a lot of these studies involve college students, which are a particular slice of the pie when we're talking about human beings, let alone Americans, and so or Americans, let alone human beings. And so um, just you know take that into consideration. Uh, and also we're relying on self-report. We have to ask people what their fantasies are, and because you can't record someone's brain activity and find out if they have uh, rape fantasies or not. So you're, so, so consider all those things. So there's been a lot of studies. Uh, one study from 1974 found that about half of everyone in their study have had a rape fantasy and about 14% have a recurring rape fantasy. And among all the different sexual fantasies listed on the survey of 15, so they have 15 different sexual fantasies. I I don't know the different sexual fantasies. I wish I did have access to that list. It would be an interesting list. But rape fantasy was just one of 15 fantasies that they listed out. And they asked people to uh, indicate the frequency. And rape fantasy was the second most frequent sexual fantasy that people had. So so not only... So again, about... 50% 50% had the fantasy and 14% had a recurring rape fantasy. And this is all women, by the way. So that's another thing I just want to say is that rape fantasy research has 99.9999% solely focused on self-identified women. Uh, they haven't asked men if they have fantasies of being raped. And I didn't see any research looking into non-binary or queer individuals in terms of their reports of rape fantasies. Certainly in these studies, I'm guessing there were non-binary people, trans people who just weren't allowed to identify as such. I don't know. But anyway, so so when I'm talking about the research and the literature, it's it's mostly focused on women reporting their rape fantasies. Uh, Having said that, I will say that there is some research on uh, identified men as whether or not they have rape fantasies, and it's it's significantly less prevalent among uh, men in, in the United States to have a fantasy of being raped. Okay. So 1979, another study looked into the difference between homosexuals and heterosexuals, and it found that For homosexuals, it was the most frequent sexual fantasy out of a list of five. And for heterosexuals, it was the second most frequent sexual fantasy out of five. So for gay people, it was a little bit more 
likely for them to have a rape fantasy, which is interesting. Going to 1982, another study, similar numbers, about half of the respondents have had a rape fantasy, um, but they broke it out into erotic and aversive, and they found that about half of the people who have a rape fantasy have erotic rape fantasies and the other half have aversive rape fantasies. So, and they also said that the aversive rape fantasy people on average had about four times per year in terms of engaging in an aversive rape fantasy in their mind. Um, You know, again, it's all kind of coded language, but I, I assume that means while masturbating or while having sex with other people, I suppose there's daydreaming involved as well, but but anyway, so so the takeaway here from this 82 study is that about half of the people say I like the erotic rom- romance novel version of rape fantasy, and the other half are, half are saying I enjoy thinking about actual hardcore, aversive, horrific rape when I masturbate or have sex. Okay. Uh, 1984, they looked at the difference between African-Americans and Caucasians, and they found that for African-Americans, it was more likely that they would have a rape fantasy, uh, which is interesting. 1994, let's see, similar numbers here. I won't go into detail. Let's see. Let's skip down here. Um, 1994, here's a study where they found that over 99% of the respondents report that they do not actually want to be raped in reality and that they are repulsed and disgusted by actual rape. So this is important, right? So, you know, when you think about all these women fantasizing about rape, you're like, well, don't people fantasize about the things that they, that they want to have happen? And this study looked into it and found that almost everyone reported that they fantasize about rape, but they definitely do not want to be raped, and they definitely hate the idea of people actually raping people. So this is something that is purely in their mind. It's just it's purely a fantasy. Okay, another study, 2009, is that they, they, they asked people to kind of rate on a spectrum in terms of their rape fantasies about whether or not they have rape fantasies and then what kind they have, whether it was erotic or aversive. And they found in 2009, this study found that nine, 9% of people had, uh, had fantasies of completely aversive at 46% reported both erotic and aversive and 45% reported completely erotic. So among the people who have rape fantasies, which appears to be about half of the women in typical uh, studies, uh, most people either are in the erotic category or in the erotic aniversive, meaning that sometimes they fantasize about erotic and sometimes they fantasize about aversive rape. And there's only, only 9% of people solely fantasize about aversive rape. So it's just interesting. Okay. So in summary, what I can say based on the research, and again, this is possible to really know, but it seems that that if you just want some rough figures, again, about half of women, particularly in the United States, have had rape fantasies. 
at some point, you know, they report like, yeah, I've had at least one rape fantasy. Again, uh, I, I'm guessing that when they're being asked this, the, the, the questions are either being said or the respondents are interpreting it as they think about rape either during masturbation or during sex or I suppose during daydreaming. Um, maybe there's other contexts like creating art or something. Um, and so about half of women report having rape fantasies and about 15% of women report having frequent rape fantasies. So think like, I don't know, once a month or more or something. And then the other rough figure to think about is that about half of those who have rape fantasies think about erotic fantasies about the other half think about both erotic and aversive and a small percentage of people just solely think about having aversive rape uh, in their you know fantasy life okay so that was interesting to me i i didn't think that the numbers would be so high uh it's I would have thought because because again the the thing you have to think about is that this is asking for people to report, so you have to figure the numbers are probably higher than that, right? Uh, unknown, but at the very least, you have half of women reporting admitting that they have had a fantasy about rape, and that's surprising to me because I again because in our society there's there's talk of this sort of thing, but not very frequently, you know, and that's what I want to tell the anonymous patron is that, uh, you know, you're wondering, is there something wrong with you? And, and of course, you know, if there's something wrong with you, then there's something wrong with half of the women on the planet. <laughs> and, and the, so the answer is no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're, you're extremely common, you know, it's as common as being male or, you know, identifying as male or identifying as female, right? It's like, uh, extremely common thing to, to, for, for people to experience. Um, okay, so let's look into the factors. Why do women have rape fantasies? Why? Why does that happen? Well, there's been a lot of different factors that have been researched. Uh, about There's, I don't know, about eight or so here. Uh, the first one, I'm going to start numbering these so I can keep track. Number one is sexual blame avoidance is what it's called in the literature sexual blame avoidance as a reason as to why women would fantasize about se- about rape and these uh, essentially it the sexual blame avoidance theory is that rape fantasies allow women or more broadly just people in general to avoid the stigma of expressing their sexual needs you know our our society generally shames everyone for sex, but particularly women, right? And and also women uh, have just as much libido and sexual energy as men do. Uh, there's there's you know it's possible that women have a slightly less uh, you know I don't know quote unquote need for sex or something. It's unknown, but but a lot of research is pointing towards, and especially when you look across cultures and across time, that. Uh, culture plays a big role on whether or not people are allowed to express their sexuality. And it appears that 
there's no reason to believe that the statement that men and women have equal need for sex is false. There's, there's, you know, there's anyway. So the point is, is that when you oppress women and you make them feel ashamed for expressing any sexual desire at all, you call them a slut, you call them, you know, all sorts of bad names. Um, she, uh, she is forced to try to cope with that in a number of ways. And one of the ways that women might cope with that is by developing a narrative in their mind about sex so that they can actually fantasize about a sexual act that doesn't contradict their programming. So, so if you've been told by society, you can't want sex, but you, but you actually do want sex and you're trying to adhere to society's norms, well, one of the fantasies you might develop is like, well, what if a man overpowers me and sort of forces me to have sex? Then I'll get to have sex because I want to have sex. But two, I will avoid the uh, stigma of acting like I want to have sex. So that's where this, that's the sexual blame avoidance. So, you know, women are avoiding being blamed for wanting to have sex. Now, what does the research say about this factor and this theory of why women would have rape fantasies? Well, there's not a lot of support for this hypothesis. Some studies have found that rape fantasies were associated with women who hold strong stigma against sex, whereas uh, many more studies has found no relationship. So in other words, uh, they'll, they'll do research, they'll conduct research in which they ask women how how often do you engage in fantasies about rape? And then they also ask them, how repressed are you about sex, essentially? Like how um, sexually open or how sexually free you are? And uh, what they, you know, if you look at all the, the studies together, you don't find a relation between those two things. So, you know, the, if, the hypo- if this sexual blame avoidance hypothesis theory was coherent, then you would find that women who are fairly repressed sexually and and have a lot of stigma about sex would have more rape fantasies, right? And they don't find that. So that isn't to say that this isn't a factor. This just is to say it just doesn't seem to be a common factor. So number two, what's the second researched factor regarding why women would have rape fantasies? The, The second one is openness to sexual experience. And this is essentially opposite of the sexual blame avoidance. So essentially what this theory states is that the more open the woman is to sex in general, the more likely she is to have a rape fantasy. So, and and research has found that women who are open to sex uh, have more rape fantasies. So in other words, uh, if, if you are as a sort of person who, uh, is sexually liberated, then you're, you're 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 more likely to have a rape fantasy. Now, this is sort of an odd theory to me because it it doesn't explain why it happens. It it just it to me it just explain or it just provides a factor that would allow a certain expression to occur. You know, to me, it's like. Because what they find is that people who are sexually open tend to have a lot more sexual fantasies. You know, you ask someone, how open are you? And they'll say, I'm very open. And you say, how many sexual, fa- how many different kinds of sexual fantasies have you had over the years? And they'll say, oh, man, I have hundreds. I have this one. I have that one. I have that one. 
And therefore, it just seems like the more sexual fantasies you have, the more likelihood one of them is going to be a rape fantasy, right? Whereas if you are very sexually repressed and, you know, you, so you go to a woman, you say, how are you, you know, how open sexually are you? And she's like, I am not, I, I'm very uptight about sex. And then you ask her, how many sexual fantasies do you have? And she's like, oh, two, you know, uh, because she doesn't allow herself. And so the chance that one of those is going to be a rape fantasy is lesser because there's just not as, there's just not as many sexual fantasies for which one could be a rape fantasy. But anyway, but that is one of the sort of prevailing theories in the literature is that as people become more open to sex, they are just more likely to develop a rape fantasy. But I don't know how explanatory that is to me, but anyway. Number three, another factor that the literature talks about is sexual desirability. Basically, it's that uh, women like to fantasize that men cannot control themselves around them. You know, that the man is willing to risk going to jail to have sex with you. You know, it's like, it's like a woman walking down the street and men are just throwing themselves at the woman. And as an extension of that, they just have to have sex with her. And therefore rape is sort of a, uh, you know, very stark, expression of that extreme need, that extreme, you know, the woman is so attractive that men not only are, you know, throwing themselves, but they must have her. And so this increases theoretically a woman's self-esteem and maybe even makes the woman feel powerful. Again, what we're talking about here is fantasy. We are not talking about reality. We're not talking about women walking down the street in reality wanting men to rape them. What we're talking about is what goes on in someone's mind as they are having sex or they are masturbating or daydreaming. And, you know, we we daydream about all sorts of things and we might daydream about getting a gun and shooting the enemy, whoever that is, but we would never do that, you know, most of us wouldn't. And so this is just a fantasy. So I just want to be clear about that. But the, this theory states that for some women, they get a tremendous amount of pleasure from the power and self-esteem of the notion that men are, uh, that they can't control themselves around you. And, you know, this is a common fantasy for everyone, I would say. I, th I would imagine most people have some kind of fantasy that involves whoever they're attracted to um, being so in lust with you that they can't control themselves. Um, this is common. Uh, the The women, uh, this this uh, notion of men not being able to control themselves around women is is common in a lot of media, Japanese film. In fact, it's extremely common in American romance novels, uh, which uh, research shows that is written mostly by women and read mostly by women. Uh, according to one study, one third of paperbacks in the U.S. are romance novels, which was surprising to me. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. one third of paperbacks sold in the United States are romance novels. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's true today, but it was at the time of this study. 
I mean, it makes sense because when I walk down the grocery store, you know, aisle that has magazines and novels, it's like the entire thing is is romance novels. Um, uh, another study found that when they actually looked at these romance novels, that 50% of them have at least one scene in which a man rapes the female protagonist because he can't control himself. So uh, it's it's interesting, right, that uh, all these novels that are written by women, that are consumed and read by women, that are so common in our society, that half of them would have at least one scene, if not several, in which a very masculine, dangerous, dominant male. I mean, think Fifty Shades of Grey. I haven't read it, but I, I imagine there's probably some element to that where he is just so infatuated with her that he um, just has to have her to such an extent that he ends up uh, raping her. Uh, you know, think Twilight has elements of this, you know, that kind of thing. All right, so let's take a pause here and just think about these first three uh, theories and how one study actually looked to evaluate them. This is a study by Bavona et al. 2012 called Women's Rape Fantasies. And it took a sample of female undergraduates, again, undergraduates, uh, who uh, I'm guessing since the researchers were at a university in Texas, it's probably Texas undergraduate females. They filled out a survey about their sexual fantasies, and they found that the sexual blame avoidance theory was not supported. So this was the uh, theory that states that for women who uh, are repressed sexually, they express their sexual need through being raped because it preserves their virginity, so to speak. Um, this theory was not supported by the women in the sample. Uh, they also asked about the openness to sexual experience, and this received the strongest support. So they found that in this study from 2012 from these women in Texas, these undergraduates in Texas, that the more open they were to sexual experience, the more likely they were to have a rape fantasy. And then the third one here of sexual desirability theory, uh, this was moderately supported. Sexual desirability, again, is the uh, reason, you know, that states that, you know, women have a rape fantasy because they want to feel powerful over men um, or they want to feel so desirable to men that the men have to force themselves on you because they just, they just must have you. So, um, so that's just one study. All right. So let's get into other factors here. Number four is masochism, classic masochism. Helene Deutsch from 1944 wrote this. She, a little background on Helene Deutsch is she was born in Poland she was Jewish, and she studied under Freud to become a psychoanalyst. She fled the U.S. during the rise of the Nazis in the 30s, and she practiced in the United States and wrote in the United States, and she died in 1982. She was a prominent psychoanalyst and theorist in our field from the early days. And she thought that rape fantasies, because she, so she found in you know her work with women in psychoanalysis in the 30s and 40s that women would have rape fantasies. And she found she started to she tried to figure out within the theory of psychoanalysis why this would be, and what Helene 
Deutsch uh, hypothesized was that rape fantasies are an expression of women's innate masochism. Uh, in other words, uh, women, many women have an unconscious desire to suffer because they, um, so it's sort of complicated and there's a lot of different roads, but let me see if I can summarize this real quickly. So uh, women are pressured to both become independent and to be dependent right? Particularly in the past, but even today. So you have women who are growing up, they're, you know, they're a teenager, they're a young woman, and they are being pressured to become independent. You know, you got to do things for yourself, you got to grow up, you got to move out of the house, you got to be, be an adult. But on the other hand, you have women, you know, at the same time, you're pressuring women to be subservient to men, to uh, not actually grow up completely to, to not actually become a full adult. And so this creates a conflict in your mind and you end up uh, turning to this um, masochism to beat yourself up around it so that you develop this unconscious rape fantasy to uh, express society's um, wishes that you stay subservient. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> your your brain, your ego creates this rape fantasy to beat you down, essentially. It's basically you've internalized society's notion that you're worthy of being raped and worthy of being kept down. And this is an expression of that. There's, there's many different angles you, you could um, explain it. And Helene Deutsch uh, didn't explain it in that way, but... Um, but she, anyway, the point is, is that, uh, you, you connect one theory as to why women would have rape fantasies is because it's a, it's an expression of an internalized societal message essentially. Okay. Number five is internalization of a relational experience. I'm actually going to move this down because it makes more sense to move it down. So I'm going to move it down. And I'm going to make a new number five, and that is going to be male rape culture. So another uh, theory in the literature that people will write about is that women have rape fantasies because of male rape culture. Now, this is an older hypothesis and not one that's often talked about today, but it was talked about in the 70s and 60s and stuff. And basically, it's believed that male rape culture uh, embedded this notion in women's head and uh, sort of forced women to think about this because um, of influence from society, right? So you have James Bond movies, for example, and many other messages, many other movies, books, uh, notions in our society that women are supposed to be demure and uh, cautious around sex and men are supposed to be forceful. And so uh, and in a, in a society that supports notions that um, rape and assault is justified and okay. And then you raise women in that pretty extreme culture, and therefore they have fantasies that exhibit that those notions, right? And with feminism, the idea was, was that it would eliminate and... Um, dissipate these fantasies among women, which, you know, made sense, right? It's like, uh, if you're in the seventies and you're observing women having rape fantasies, you're just like, well, of course they have this because our society 
is horrible towards women. And, and so they've just internalized those messages. And so therefore they're, they're expressing that through their, through their fantasy life. But as our society became more equal and as our media images became less um, rape culture so to speak, the uh, the reporting of rape fantasies didn't become lesser. So the there doesn't seem to be evidence that male rape culture is the cause of uh, female rape fantasies. In fact, some research suggests the opposite, actually, that uh, women become, as women become more sexually free, they're actually more likely to add a rape fantasy to their repertoire. So it, it almost seems like feminism, in a sense, you could say, is as actually increasing the likelihood of women reporting that they have a rape fantasy. Okay, number six. The Another factor as to why women would have a rape fantasy is the biological predisposition is the other theory in the literature. Um, essentially, this hypothesis states that women evolved to want to be raped. Um, you know, the, again, you know, you know what I feel about evolutionary psychology and, and how it's um, nearly impossible, if not impossible to actually study and demonstrate these, these hypotheses. They're, they're fine things to hypothesize, but, 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 you know, we just have to say, well, we'll never know because we don't have the ability to raise thousands of babies in different cocooned environments in which we experiment on them and compare the different groups. We just don't have that ability. And so therefore we might not, and, and we don't have a time machine to go back and sort of split off different groups to see like how they develop differently. So we'll just never know. But, but the point is, is that there are people who hypothesize that, uh, you know, men and women have evolved different, uh, sexual, uh, uh, psychologies and, that because of that, uh, some women will develop a rape fantasy because they have a innate attraction to physically strong men and are um, because physically strong men over time have been found to uh, be more likely to protect women and their offspring, right? So there's a lot I can say about this topic, but I don't want to go into too much detail. But if I were to speculate as to the evolutionary psychology factors that might contribute maybe to rape fantasies among women is that, you know, it seems likely that women have evolved to be attracted to certain markers of masculinity, right? And these are cultural bound, right? They're the uh, culture in which you grow up in helps to shape and form your notion of what masculinity exactly means. And... But uh, it probably often means, uh, in general, masculinity is associated with being taller than women and, and being broader-shouldered, being more aggressive, this kind of thing. And uh, it also seems possible that women evolved to be attracted to heterosexual women would be attracted to, or shall I say, women have been women have evolved to be a. Uh, to like it when people are attracted to them, right? And to be sexually attracted to people who really want to have sex with them, right? It makes sense, right? It's like, you know, uh, the opposite wouldn't make any sense, right? It's like, okay, uh, humans evolved 
to be sexually attracted to people who don't want to have sex with them. You know, it doesn't seem uh, like a, a, a winning formula. So, you know, you uh, match up those two things that it's possible women evolved in general to be uh, attracted if they're heterosexual to men who are masculine, meaning that they're bigger and stronger and that they also are turned on when that man really wants them sexually, right? And that when you take that evolutionary reality into the fantasy world, then it can be extended to actual rape, you know, erotic rape or aversive rape. Again, because when you ask people, would you actually like to be raped? They're like, no, no, absolutely not. This is just a fantasy. So it seems that, uh, you know, as a result of our biology, uh, we might play a lot in our fantasies with reality a lot. You know, our dreams, our daydreams, our fantasies are, are often sort of exaggerations of reality and to, to sort of push things and play in our minds. It's the same for kids when, you know, they're playing that, you know, I'm a dinosaur and I'm going to kill you. You know, they don't actually want to kill you. They're just, they're just playing with reality. And we tend to get a lot of sort of pleasure or some kind of, we're working stuff out in that way. Anyway, so that's what I'll say about evolutionary biology and psychology. So that's number six. Number seven is an interesting theory that has to do with the sympathetic nervous system. And this is the theory that says that when we get, uh, when we're anxious or, or angry or even just exercising, you know, our, our blood is up that activates the sympathetic fight or flight response, right? You know, when you're, when you're scared and when you're angry, your fight or flight response kicks in. Uh, and this might enhance sexual arousal. For example, in one study, they had women watch an erotic video and they measured their, you know, it's hard to, you know, scientists are always looking for numerical ways of measuring things instead of just asking people, right? So, um, so in order to measure women's arousal by an erotic video, they uh, hook their vagina up to a, a device that that somehow measures blood flow to the vagina. And they had two groups of women. One group was pre-exposed prior to watching the erotic video. They were they were exposed to something very frightening. I don't know what that was. They didn't describe it, but I'm guessing probably a video that was, you know, like a horror video, something with a lot of jump scares or something. And then another group was watched something neutral, like, say, Back to the Future or something. And they found that the scared group had more vaginal blood volume when they watched the erotic video. So so if this is going by too fast, <laughs> when they exposed women to something that frightened them or was supposed to be frightening, uh, and then they watched the erotic porn video, there was more blood in the vagina. And by implication, the woman is more receptive to erotic material because their sympathetic nervous system had been primed, if that makes any sense. And so the, the question here is just like, well, wait a second, why would we biologically evolve to connect fear with sexual arousal? It doesn't make any sense. Well, there's no way to know, but 
my just so story is that we just have crossed wires. You know, we're not precise evolutionary machines. We, we, you know, there are many parts of our biology and psychology that aren't logical or aren't even good for us. You know, I, I have a friend who has a sinus problem, a chronic sinus problem, and she had surgery and uh, it's, it seemingly had fixed the, cause she had a, she had sinuses that the holes weren't big enough so that things couldn't flush out. And so she had surgery to, to make the holes bigger. And, but after the surgery, she still had just as many problems because her white blood cells were, were thinking there was a problem and they were attacking her sinuses and they were making it inflamed and therefore it would, it would get stuffed up and then infections would, you know, set in and then white more white blood cells. And so sometimes our bodies don't, the systems don't work well together, if that makes any sense. You know, we're not, we're not super precise machines that everything makes logical sense. You know, for example, with psychology, we seemingly evolve to care about the approval of our tribe. We are terrified of disapproval. We're terrified of being humiliated in front of a bunch of people, which is a good system when it comes to uh, trying to be harmonious with the tribe and therefore garner support and resources from the tribe. But this system also makes us extremely terrified to the point where we actually, it actually works against us. For example, people, there are people say, you know, just I'll take me, for example, when I was in the sixth grade, fifth grade, I had to get up in front of the class and give a report. I had to, and I've always been terrified of speaking in front of crowds. And so, and particularly when I was young and so my fear of humiliation actually was humiliating because I got up in front of the crowd in the class and I made a fool out of myself. So the very fear system that's supposed to protect me from humiliation actually made me uh, do something that was humiliating. <laughs> so, um, so it's not as if all of our systems are always, you know, working for us, if that makes any sense. And so it's possible that the system of fear is just somehow just biologically strangely connected to the biology of sexuality uh, somewhat. Um, so, you know, that seems to be what some research suggests maybe, but what we're talking about here is a lab condition where you're exposing women to something that's frightening in terms of, um, you know, probably a video of some kind. And the woman probably knows very well that she's not actually in danger. So there's a big difference between watching a horror movie and actually being in danger, right? So, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. Um, another study found that when you increase the sympathetic response, either through fear or anger or through exercise, this increased the attraction to an attractive person. So they, they had, they, you know, they frightened people or they made them angry or they made them just do exercise. And when they saw an attractive person, they were even more attracted to them, which I think, you know, explains a lot of the sexuality that goes on in gyms a lot. <laughs> um, but other studies actually look at this more broadly and from different angles and find that there's really a sweet spot for the sympathetic response because 
as we all know, and I'm sure some of you are thinking this, is that when people are afraid, they are they they can't be aroused sexually. You know, when when a woman is terrified, for example, of being abused or I don't know the the bills that are piling up. It's uh, for many women and 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 men. For actually, it's for men and women. When when men, you know, uh, it's hard for them to become sexually aroused. It's hard for them to enjoy sex. This is actually a a big reason that I find that people will have quote unquote erectile dysfunction. For a lot of men, when they enter into a sexual activity. They are, there's various different things that men can be afraid of. One of which is, will I get an erection? And if you've had trauma around not being able to get an erection or, you know, or some other kind of sexual trauma or trauma in general, then you enter into that uh, experience sexually with a tremendous amount of fear. And that completely prevents the biological system of sexuality to kick in to produce an erection. And so uh, we can't oversimplify this and say that, you know, fear increases people's likelihood of being sexually aroused. So it's not that simple. But we can say that a little bit of fear seems to be uh, a good amount to activate the sympathetic nervous system enough. And by sympathetic nervous system, we're talking about like heart rate and blood vessel dilation, your pupils of your eyes, um, muscle, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there seems to be some uh, evidence that if there's a little bit of activation there for your sympathetic nervous system, that that might help you to become more sexually aroused. And so when it comes to rape fantasy, if you have a rape fantasy and you're sort of, and you, you know that you're okay because it's just in your mind. And so you're fantasizing about actually being terrified. You know, this, this explains the aversive rape situation, right? Where it's like uh, the fantasy is of someone overpowering you who is older, unattractive, uh, someone who t- doesn't care about you and they're using your body and, and you don't like it. it. You know, it hurts. Well, this fantasy uh, is scary, and but you know in your mind that you're also okay. You know that you're not actually being raped, and so it's it's sort of like a horror movie in your mind that's that's not real that might get the blood flowing and sort of prime the pump, so to speak, for sexuality to be easier. It, and it kind of makes sense, right? If your if your heart is pounding faster and your blood vessels are more open and your energy is up, then sexual systems are probably more easily uh, engaged. You know, the opposite could be true as well. If you're tired and lethargic and, um, you know, and your heart is uh, extremely inactive and your adrenaline is very low, the, uh, the, the ability for your body to kick into the sexual uh, systems and the sexual, uh, you know, routines of the biological systems uh, would probably be not likely or not as likely. Okay. So that was the seventh factor. Number eight is the internalization of a relational experience, which is a psychodynamic idea. Essentially, this can happen through sexual abuse, obviously, or physical abuse or any, any kind of abuse. Essentially what this idea is, is, 
it's it's sort of my main theory in terms of my understanding of of people really in that when we're young we internalize all the relationships that we are in and particularly intense relationships and so if you are being raped or abused or uh, spanked hard or chastised and by by someone that you are supposed to uh, be to have love with, say it's your parents or even a, a spouse when you're young, a partner, a sexual partner when you're young, you internalize the whole relationship. You internalize not only the good parts, but all the bad parts. And so everything kind of becomes associated with each other. And so you associate, you begin to associate love and attachment and <clears throat> to some extent safety with, with not being safe and being hurt and being abused and being, um, dominated and this kind of thing. And so the, the relationship becomes internalized and therefore later on in life, you just have all those associations. Now the, uh, the, I'm going to break this up into two different, into eight and nine in terms of this first one I want to talk about is what I'll just basically generally call healthy expressions of this. There's many people who talk about this where, you know, take like S&M, for example, people who are into pain play and this kind of thing. They uh, were abused as children and grow up and take some pleasure in incorporating pain and dominance and physical harm with their sexual life. And it seems to them that the fact that they were abused as children is related to the fact that they now incorporate it into their sexual play or into their fantasies. And for many people, they can turn this into a very positive thing. It's always consensual. It's, um, it, it's a rush for them. They really like it. It, it feels good. It, for some people, it might be the only way they can actually enjoy themselves sexually is, is to engage in, in, um, you know, sadism, masochism, this kind of stuff and dominance. And, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the, the fact that you have some connection to your childhood regarding your sexuality isn't uh, strange. It's just, it's fine. So as long as you do it ethically and without shame and without being too busted up about it, then, you know, it's all good. The, the ninth one though, that I, the ninth factor here is the same situation, except what I'll call an unhealthy recreation. It's a well-known phenomenon. I've talked about this before in other podcasts people who have been abused have a tendency to recreate that abuse uh, in a very unhealthy manner. Meaning that, you know, you take someone who was raped as a child uh, or as a younger person, and then later in life, they have, um, they, they're attracted to people who will in turn rape them or abuse them or dominate them in ways that are not um, healthy and, and don't feel good. And people in these situations will wonder why, why is what, you know, out of the five men that I've been with, how come all of them are, have, have, how come all of them are uh, sexually problematic with me and other people? How, how come I'm so attracted to that? Why do I even put up with it? That kind of thing. And the, issue is complex. There's no way to know, but, and I've talked about this in other episodes, but basically it's, we, for better or for worse, we tend to recreate our past. We recreate our past relationships with our current people. 
and whether this is related to sexual abuse, physical abuse, or love, or, you know, we, we just tend to, you know, what our experiences we had when we were young, we tend to seek those out and, and, or socialize other people to, uh, to mirror what we experienced when we were children. And the hypotheses that I've developed that explain why we do this is because we, again, we internalized these relationships and these relationships exist in our minds and are not easily metabolized because they're at war with each other. And so therefore we externalize one half of it. It's very complicated, (laughs) but um, you know, listen to my episodes on predictive identification for that. It's also very comfortable to recreate something that we know, even, you know, the devil, you know, right. It will be, because if we grew up in abusive relationships, we're very comfortable in those because we know what they are. We, we know how to predict what's going to happen. Whereas for, for many abuse people, when they are older and they meet someone who is not abusive, they become anxious because they don't know exactly what's happening and they, they don't know how to predict the future. And so they might turn to an abusive partner unconsciously because they just feel strangely more at ease. Another reason why, um, so this is all related to why an abused person might engage in rape fantasies later in life. Um, they Again, the rape fantasies are fine. There's nothing wrong with having fantasies, right? The fantasy, Everyone has fantasies, and so it's, it's just a fantasy. But it might actually, uh, the recreation of those incidents in your mind might actually be hurtful to you. You know what I mean? Um, and so this is, so this is the ninth factor as to this. It's really the only factor I can say that, uh, points towards reasons as to why one would not do it and why one would, uh, seek therapy to, to reduce it. So we have, you externalize the internalization. It's also comfortable. Also, we're often seeking a new result. So when we recreate these difficult past experiences, we're, a possible reason why we would do that is because we're seeking some new positive result. If you were physically abused by a dominant female when you were young, then you engage with a dominant female boss at work and you try to please her so that she won't physically abuse you because you're, you're trying to find an example of goodness in the world, you know? And so some people might recreate the rape fantasy in their mind as a way of trying unconsciously to have some other ending that wasn't the ending that they actually experienced because it feels better, um, if that makes any sense. Sort of, you know, hoping for a happy ending to a terrible situation. Now, if it's unconscious, people don't necessarily know to consciously force the scenario in their mind to become positive. So they just sort of recreate this loop in their mind of the horribleness that's happening through this fantasy. And it, you know, continually uh, traumatizes the individual. Another reason for why we recreate these experiences is because we might be trying to practice for another future event. If this is, you know, one of the reasons hypothesized as to why we dream, Uh, you know, you are dreaming about being, uh, someone is attacking you or they're hostile towards you. And so your brain is practicing how to get away or how to fight back. Or, and the idea goes is that it's practice for real life, right? And so you, one might fantasize about rape because they unconsciously or consciously, because they're trying to, 
to figure out a solution and come up with ways to get out of that assault. And that might be conscious or it might be unconscious, right? Um, anyway, so if, if this is the reason, uh, if, if, you, if upon reflecting and exploring and talking with other people that this, the rape fantasy is some kind of unhealthy recreation of the past, then uh, it's something to uh, try to get therapy about and try to recover from the abuse you've been, been through so that this doesn't happen so much. But as I, that's the ninth factor. You know, there's, there's eight other factors as to why someone would have a rape fantasy that has nothing to do with um, unhealth. So I just, uh, I just want to point that out. Okay, so let's conclude here. Again, about 50% of women report that they have rape fantasies at some point in their life. And about 15% of women report frequently having rape, engaging in rape fantasy, you know, volitionally, right? They're, they're doing it um, on purpose. So does this mean that, uh, you know, we just want to say as a caveat, does, does this mean that men should try to dominate women because they secretly want to be raped? No, there's a big difference between fantasy and real life. As I said before, over 99% of women report that actual rape is disgusting to them and aversive to them and horrible to them and politically awful to them. So even though 50% of women report that they've had at some point in their life a rape fantasy, basically all women state that rape is a horrible thing in real life. So the fact that someone has a fantasy is completely different from real life. So we just, if you're a man and you're confused about the difference, let me drive that home. Just because a woman has a fantasy, you know, clearly according to the data that has nothing to do with her, her actual desires in real life. Okay. Um, patron anonymous patron, should you be worried or ashamed about your fantasies? The answer is no. Um, Unless, again, not ashamed, you should never be ashamed for anything in this category, but should you be worried? Well, there's a possibility that you should be worried if, if you believe that you're putting yourself in harm's way. You know, if you're, if you're having fantasies that are leading you to do risky behavior or even just flat out recreating rape um, situations for yourself, and it's all a part of that, then yeah, you should be worried about it. Um, or you should be worried about it if the fantasy is very distressing to you. You know, there there are people who have fantasies and daydreams and otherwise that are very distressing and, and can sort of compound the abuse. Uh, it's, it, you know, the brain doesn't necessarily know the difference between a fantasy and a real-life situation. Certain parts of your brain, so to speak, don't know the difference. And so when you play these things out, it can actually be um, as traumatizing potentially as, as an actual event. Um, does your fantasy mean that you like it? This is a question that you asked. You said, you know, does it, you know, be, because I have these rape fantasies, does that mean that I actually liked being raped? And this is a very complicated question. You know, the, the knee jerk reaction is to say, no, of course not. You know, but you know, we have to be honest here and say that, um, I mean, so first off, no one likes to be abused, right? There, there, there's, there's nothing, that's the definition. It, you know, if you liked it, it wouldn't actually be abusive, right? So, so no one likes to be abused overall. 
you know, for most people, if not everyone, being abused is a horrible, terrifying, frightening, uh, traumatizing situation that creates a lifelong problem of trauma, you know. However, it should be noted that, and people have written into me about this, some of you might be listening right now, some survivors do report a uh, feeling of affinity toward their abuser. And some report even having some sexual pleasure from the actual abuse that they experienced. Now, is that because they actually liked it? Or is it because it was the only way they could cope with it? Because, you know, it's when, when you're going through a, when you're trapped and you're going through a horrible situation, one of the ways that your brain will cope with it is just to say, well, let's just turn this into a, let's just uh, sort of submerge the negative side of this and let's just try to turn it into something positive. You know, it's a well-known phenomenon, but, but there are some situations where, you know, in the overall experience, there can be some sexual pleasure, so to speak, that actually comes from that. Um, now, uh, the overall experience is horrible and the overall experience is abusive and the overall experience is horrific and traumatizing. But, you know, in the midst of all that there, for some people, there could be like a fleeting moment or even an ongoing enjoyment, so to speak, some kind of physical pleasure or, or for some people they'll report that they even get some sort of pleasure about uh, the relationship that they had with their abuser, that they felt uh, some closeness, you know, and some attachment to them, especially if that was a family member, right? So there's, when you actually talk to actual survivors and they are free to be honest, they will tell you uh, sometimes that they have an extremely um, complicated, nuanced rainbow of reactions to what had happened. And the fact that we are, uh, we find it difficult to talk about some of the quote unquote positive sides of this, uh, you know, means that survivors have to be ashamed that they have those feelings and not talk about them. So we have to acknowledge that for some people. Having said that, there are many people who have been abused, who have not a single iota of pleasure or, uh, you know, positive feeling about the abuse. So it, it, it's case by case basis. So, so is it possible for you, anonymous patron, that you, among all the horrific trauma, you had uh, some pleasure from it. Yeah, it's it's possible. I, you know, it, it's something that you would explore for yourself. But but let me make something very clear. You know, let's say that you did quote unquote like some aspect of it. That does not mean that you deserved it. It doesn't mean that you asked for it. It doesn't mean that you quote unquote let it happen. Because I'm saying this because survivors often shame themselves or blame themselves in this way. They'll say like, well, geez, I, I kind of liked it. That must mean that I deserved it or that I let it happen or that I asked for it. Um, you know, because actually some abuse victims will actually um, quote unquote seek it out because one, they, again, might get something out of it. They might get some form of attachment because no one else is paying attention to them or loving them. Uh, they might seek out the abuser because they just want to get it over with. They're just like, well, if it's going to happen, I'll make it happen on my terms. Let's just, let's just get this over with. There's a lot of reasons why this happens. And, and uh, survivors will 
beat themselves up. They'll be like, well, I don't have a right to be upset. I don't have a right to be angry. I don't have a right to press charges because I, I was part of the problem, you know, but for the vast majority of cases, if not all the cases that I've been a part of, that's just a way of coping. You know, you're, you're dealing with something that is horrible, unfair, that you didn't deserve. It was illegal, immoral, unethical, and the victim had to survive and resorted to things that they did only because they were trapped. If they were able to actually get away safely, if they were able to get love and attention from other people, then uh, they would have done that. But most people, you know, most abuse victims don't have those options or the abuser strips away those options. So, you know, does the fact that you have a fantasy about rape somehow mean that you liked the rape that you went through? Uh, it's a complicated question that would require a, a lot of exploration and needs to be uh, tempered with a lot of consideration to the tendency for victims to blame themselves and to find a reason to somehow justify the abuse that happened. Um, another question is, should you get help to recover from the abuse? And the answer is yes, it takes time, but it's worth it. Another question, will the therapy end your fantasy? You know, if, if you go through a lot of therapy and recover from the abuse you went through, will your fantasy end? And the question is, I the answer is, I don't know. There's no way to know because your fantasy could be completely independent of your experiences or completely connected. Or after recovering, you still retain that aspect of the abuse. Um, so it's just, it's just unknown. Um, another question is, um, why do you have the rape fantasy, right? So, you know, that's, that's the question. It's like, why do I have that? Um, again, it could be completely related to your sexual abuse history. It could be, um, completely unrelated. It could be caused by it. Just, there's just no way to know. But again, just to review the different factors that might be at play, we have sexual blame avoidance, you know, women who will, uh, fantasize about being raped because they want to avoid the stigma of actually expressing their sexuality. Two, you have a openness to sexual experience. The, the more open you are, the more likely you are to have a rape fantasy. Number three, sexual desirability. Women, uh, some women like to fantasize that women are so sexually attracted to them that they need to overpower them because they're, they're just, they just have to have you. So that's another possible reason as to why you have this sexual fantasy. And number four is masochism. In other words, uh, there's various different reasons why a woman would beat herself up on the inside and the rape fantasy might be a part of that. Number five is male rape culture. Uh, th this theory states that our culture has basically embedded the notion of rape in women's minds and women uh, ad adhere to the propaganda and engage in uh, fantasies that involve that. Number six is a biological predisposition. Uh, you know, women evolved to want to be raped essentially, or want to be overpowered. Um, there's a lot of issues and problems with that theory, but um, this other, you know, 
slight possibility, I suppose. Number seven is the sympathetic activation theory, which is that as you become with the rape fantasy, you become slightly scared because it's not actually happening. So you're not terrified. You're just like slightly scared. And that activates your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight response, which sort of primes the pump for sexual um, systems to be able to pump blood to where it needs to go. (laughs) Number eight is just the internalization and recreation of a relational experience that is not unhealthy. And then number nine is an actual unhealthy recreation. So those are the different reasons. I hope that answers your questions, anonymous patron. Let me know what you think. And everyone else, let me know what you think. If you want to email me about your potential rape fantasies, go for it. Um, uh, I don't think I've ever asked such a question, but I, I guess I guess I would be interested in people's lived experience with that. Um, you can write me anonymously if you send an email through the contact form on our website because it's not from your email address. It's just from our website. And then you could just like... In the, e- in the name box, you can just write anonymous, and in the email box, you just write anonymous or something. Um, but yeah, I guess I'd be interested to, to know people's lived experience with it um, and how they reacted to this episode. All right, so that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Maybe I'll just do a couple announcements here. Again, we have our 10-year anniversary show on August 11. 2018. It's going to be at the North City Bistro in Shoreline, Washington, three o'clock. We have a Facebook page that's going. I just got a bunch of swag ready to go. It's in my garage. It's this two boxes full of swag to give out. We're going to just play games. We're going to do trivia. We're going to do some stage presentations. Uh, Umberto and I, there's going to be other guest speakers. We're going to we're going to do a D&D five-minute demonstration. You know, there's just going to be little five-minute uh, segments that we're going to sprinkle through about an hour, hour and a half. Also, if you're a patron and you're coming to the show and you want to be um, featured in the show, like every once in a while, I'm going to, on the PowerPoint, I'm going to throw up a patron's picture and a little story about them, you know, and so people have already done that. And so if you are thinking about doing that, just email me a picture of yourself and a little blurb, just, you know, a couple sentences about who you are and you know, what you're all about, maybe why you like the podcast or something. I don't know. So there's that. Also, if you want to review us on iTunes, I know every podcast asks their listeners to do this. I, from what I understand, it actually helps people to, it basically raises the podcast in terms of the ranking. You know, like when you type in psychology into podcasts, it a, a number of different psychology podcasts pop up. And uh, the idea goes is that the further up you are in the list, the more likely people are going to find you. So I guess the more reviews we have on iTunes, the better that goes. I don't know if I care that much about that, but if you're interested, you know, write a review on iTunes. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that does it. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do. (laughs) 